Well, it's so good to have each of you here joining us this morning. Thank you for coming. If you're a, a regular attender, welcome. If you're a guest, we're so glad to have each of you here. Um, we hope you feel welcome this morning. If you're joining us online, we also welcome you, those who are joining us via Facebook Live. And so glad to have each and every one of you. It's hard to believe that Easter is just around the corner, just two weeks away, and we're in the middle of an, a series of kind of about Easter. And the reality as a pastor the two hardest times of the year to, to preach or talk are Christmas and Easter because the story never changes. We have the same story every Christmas, same story every Easter, and what I love about the series that we're in is we're looking at individuals that we normally don't look at who are a part of the Easter story. And uh, last week, if you were a part of one of our services or you joined us online, uh, you would have heard the message about Judas Iscariot and how there's in all of us, just a little bit of Judas, how oftentimes we kind of pretend, how we oftentimes try to bargain with God. There's different things that we do. And, and this week, we're going to be looking at another character in the Easter story who, in reality, is kind of just a footnote, and we'll talk about that more later. But he does play a significant role, and his name is Caiaphas. He's the high priest of, of Israel. Now, for those who maybe you aren't a church person, maybe you're here this morning and you're really not a church person, maybe somebody drug you here, or just because it's near Easter, you were invited or something like that, that's okay, we're so glad to have you. But for people who aren't Christians or church people, they often look at those who are Christians or church people and they kind of get confused. There, there's something about what oftentimes happens with many of us who call ourselves believers of Christ that confuse others, and really rightfully so, because so often... Those of us who claim to follow Christ, those of us who claim to, to have God in our lives, we resist the God that we say we follow. We resist the God that we say we follow. All of us who know Jesus as our Savior, we've had moments, even since salvation, where we have resisted God or we've struggled with God about something. Let's be honest, how many of us have struggled with God over something. He wanted you to do something, not do something, those of us. All right. Some of you, you're in church. You shouldn't lie, so you should have probably put your hand up. That's all right. You can repent later. You'll have that opportunity. But all of us have a struggle with God at one point or another. And people in the outside, they look at us oftentimes, and rightfully so, and they use a word. Does anybody know what that word might be? Hypocrite. When you say one thing, but you do another. And I, I would say if you're part of that, if you're not a Christian, you're just kind of looking at us, get, cut us a little bit of slack, cut us a little slack, because it is kind of hard to surrender your life completely to somebody you've never seen, to surrender your life completely to somebody who speaks to you through an ancient document, somebody who speaks to you through your conscience. So cut us a little slack. However, those of us who know Jesus are our Savior, we have to make sure that we don't live hypocritically, that we say one thing, but we do something different. Today we're going to look at an individual who really had an issue with that. His name was Caiaphas. You see, Caiaphas was the high priest in Israel during the days of Jesus. His father-in-law had been the high priest in Israel, as had his five uh, brother-in-laws. And for over 40 years... The, that group of family members had been the high priest of Israel. Now, you might say, well, I don't even know what a high priest... I mean, I know what a priest is. I've heard that, you know, in Catholic church, but I really don't know what a high priest is. Well, the high priest in Israel was a person that was at the top of their religious structure. 
That person was at the center of all of Jewish life because Jewish life centered around their, their religion, around their belief in God, around their faith. And the high priest of Israel not only acted as a liaison between the people of Israel and God, but when the Roman army or the, the Roman Empire uh, took over, he acted then, the high priest acted as a liaison between the Jewish nation and Rome. In particular, in Israel, there was a man named Pilate, who was a part of the Easter story as well, and Caiaphas would work kind of as a liaison. He would work as the, the, the middleman between the nation of Israel and Rome, along with Pilate. And so Caiaphas was an, a very important individual. He played a very important role in that first century. Being high priest of Israel came with a lot of perks. In particular, it came with financial benefits. You see, all Jews, no matter where you were around the world, were supposed to pay the temple tax. And so Jews from around the world and Jews who were within Israel, they would send their tithe, they would send their temple tax to an area of Jerusalem known as the temple. And all of that money would come in. In today's dollars, we're talking about millions upon millions of dollars every year pouring in. And so the high priests, Caiaphas and his family, grew very wealthy as part of that. And so his position was very advantageous. He enjoyed his position of power in Israel. And things were going along very well for him until a man came on the scene. He was a carpenter, or at least the son of a carpenter from Nazareth, and his name was Jesus, or as we often call him, right, Jesus Christ. Many of you may, maybe don't know that Christ isn't actually his last name, <laughs> You might have heard somebody in your family, a grandfather or somebody that used it like that, right? That was like his last name. But Christ was really uh, the way to say that Jesus was the fulfillment of everything the Old Testament said about the Messiah, that Jesus was the Messiah, that he had come to bring salvation for all people. So Jesus comes on the scene and begins to cause problems for Caiaphas and the other religious leaders. They didn't like what Jesus was doing. They didn't really care what he talked about. They didn't really care what he said. There were always people in Israel for literally hundreds of years who would come on the scene and say all kinds of crazy things, and not much came of that. That really wasn't the issue that Caiaphas and the other religious leaders had with Jesus. The main issue they had with Jesus, or one of the first issues they had with Jesus, was that Jesus drew crowds. Jesus drew crowds. And you might think, okay, so what does that matter? Well, in Jesus' day, with the Roman occupation, crowds were a very dangerous thing. Crowds could quickly turn. How many of you ever heard of mob mentality? Anybody? Right? One, one moment, everything's good, and then all of a sudden, something happens, and the whole crowd goes one direction. The religious leaders were worried about it. Pilate, the Romans were worried about it. It could mean insurrection was happening. It could mean maybe a civil war was about to take place. The, the religious leaders were worried that the crowds would turn on them. They didn't know what would happen. And so with their power and control that they wanted to maintain, crowds were a problem. And Jesus was a master at drawing a crowd. As you think through the scripture, and hopefully you, you read the Bible, I encourage you to do so. Read through the New Testament in particular. We learned that Jesus, everywhere he went, there was a crowd. Sometimes it was just maybe a few hundred. Other times it was literally a few thousand. In one specific instance, it says that Jesus drew a crowd of 5,000 men plus women plus children. And he was on a hillside like a natural amphitheater and he was speaking to them. And they were hungry and he ends up doing a miracle and feeds them. 
But the point is, Jesus always had a crowd around him. People were drawn to him, and that was a problem for the religious leaders in Caiaphas in particular. They weren't sure what would happen. They were afraid that if the peace was disturbed, that the Romans would take Caiaphas and the others out of power, and their lucrative position would be gone. But another issue that Caiaphas and the religious leaders had with Jesus was that Jesus spoke with authority. He spoke with authority, and really he acted with authority. He did things with authority as well. In one instance, Jesus goes into the temple, and he discovers that there's a lot of things happening in the temple that aren't good. People are being taken advantage of. The area where the women and the Gentiles could come and pray in the temple had now become a marketplace filled with animals, and it was loud and chaotic. And how was somebody to come that could only come to that area of the temple? They couldn't go in any further. How could they have the opportunity to pray? Plus, as the money changers would, because you had to pay your temple tax in currency, the Jewish currency, if you were from another area, you had to exchange your money, and they would take advantage of that, give you very poor exchange rates. And so Jesus, seeing what was happening, was, was angry and frustrated that the house of prayer, the place where people were come to meet God, was turned into a place where people were growing wealthy and taking advantage of others and distracting. And so he begins to flip the tables and drive everybody, all the, the money changers, out of that area, out of that temple area, to the outside of the temple, and when the high priest hears about it, he sends some, some men to go check to see what's going on. And when the men come, they arrive, they don't ask Jesus, what are you doing? They say, who do you think you are? Basically, whose authority do you have to do this? Whose authority do you have to say these things? Scripture talks about how Jesus spoke with an authority that nobody had ever heard before. Even the religious leaders, even the experts of the law, did not speak with the authority that Jesus had. And that scared Caiaphas. It scared the religious leaders. Another reason that Caiaphas and the religious leaders had with Jesus was Jesus was critical of them. If you want to see a good rant, have you ever kind of gone off on somebody a little bit? Like maybe you got frustrated to the point where you just couldn't handle it anymore and you just kind of go off. And what do you do? You go through the litany of things that you have, problems you have with them. Well, Jesus actually does that in Matthew chapter 3. It's definitely worth checking out sometime. I just want to read a few verses for you to, to show you an example. In, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus begins his rant this way. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example for they don't practice what they preach or teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. And then Jesus goes into his litany of charges against them. And I'm not going to take the time to read it. You can do that, Matthew chapter 23 sometime. But then Jesus kind of puts a nice little bow on the end of his rant against the religious leaders of his day. And in, in chapter 23, verse 33, Jesus end, kind of ends his rant this way. You snakes, you son of vipers. <laughs> We probably wouldn't let our kids talk that way, or grandkids, right? That's a little, little over the top, a little intense. But Jesus, in speaking to them, said, You snakes, you son of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Basically, he says, you're going to go to hell. He looks at the religious leaders of the day. He looks at the people that were supposed to lead everybody else, 
And after putting all of his charges against them, he in essence says, you're not going to escape hell. You are going to hell because of the way that you live. So you can kind of understand, right, if Caiaphas wasn't a Jesus fan, right? I mean, if you know somebody that's saying bad things about you, how many of you like, still love that person, like them a lot, right? We, we don't like people who criticize us and say bad things about us. Jesus has this litany of charges and ends with basically saying, you're not going to escape the judgment of hell. So you might understand, Caiaphas was not a Jesus fan. The religious leaders were not fans of Jesus, even a little bit. But there were more reasons that the religious leaders had to not like Jesus. Jesus was perceived as a threat to the peace. For you see, as long as there was peace in Israel, the money would keep flowing in. As long as there was peace in Israel, Caiaphas would maintain power. But as soon as that peace was threatened, it would threaten the peacemakers, and their position would be gone, the money would be gone, and they couldn't imagine a world like that. And so they wanted to maintain peace at all costs. And finally, there came a moment, though, that just, it it was the final straw. It was Jesus' miraculous act of compassion was the final straw. You see, Jesus heard that one of his friends, Lazarus, had died. And so Jesus makes his way to where Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, are. And upon arriving, finds out that Lazarus had passed away and he'd actually been buried three days prior. And Mary and Martha are all upset. They said, Jesus, if you could have been here, you could have saved him. You could have healed him. We've seen you heal tons and tons of people. We know you could have healed him if you were here, but you weren't, and they were distraught. And actually, one of the cool places in Scripture I love preaching about, Jesus actually weeps in that moment, showing his, his humanness. He wept at the destruction that death brings in our world. But he says, don't, don't cry or don't worry. Even though he looks dead, he, he's really not. And so Jesus ends up going and calls Lazarus forth, and Lazarus comes out of the tomb dressed in in grave clothes, and they they take the grave clothes off of him. And this miracle happens, and miracles had happened before, but it was always with a foot or a hand being healed or, or turning a few loaves of bread and a few fish into a feast for a multitude. But can you imagine the crowds and the excitement when they hear Jesus didn't just turn a few loaves and fish into a lot of food? He raised somebody who had been in the ground for three days. It was at this point that the religious leaders had had enough. They couldn't handle it anymore. And so in in John chapter 11, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn there. That's where we're going to dive into the scripture. John chapter 11. The apostle John records for us the response that the religious leaders had at this point in, in Jesus' ministry. They had seen enough. They'd heard enough. The crowds were getting too big. There was too much excitement. And something had to be done. Again, John chapter 11, we're going to begin with verse 45. Many of the people who were there with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. So there was the crowd that was gathered with Mary, consoling her, grieving with her. And when they see Lazarus raised to life after being in the ground for three days, of course they believe in Jesus. Why would you not believe in somebody who can raise somebody from the dead like that? But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priest and Pharisees called the high council together. And so this high council was actually really made up of three entities. And these three entities, let's just say, weren't friends. Let's just say they they didn't see eye to eye. You had the the Pharisees, who were the religious conservatives of their day. You had the Sadducees, who were the the liberal left-wing members of the religious 
establishment in Israel of their day. The Pharisees said there was a bodily resurrection. The Sadducees said, no, there wasn't. And there were some other things as well that they had issues with. And then you had the priests as well. And all of these individuals made up this high council. It was known as the Sanhedrin. And they didn't come together a lot, and they didn't agree very often. But with Jesus, there was an agreement that something had to be done. And so they asked each other, what are we going to do? This man certainly performs many miraculous signs. They admit, yeah, we know. We've seen him heal people. We, we know he does miracles. But in verse 48, we find this. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. Then the Roman army will come and destroy both our temple and our nation. Notice, I want to point out that verse 48. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone will believe in him. How, what an incredible statement. Right? As a, a believer, as a follower of Christ, that's what we want. We want everybody to believe in him. We, we recognize what he's done in our life, and we want people to know. And the Jews, the religious leaders, look around, they say, everybody in the world is going to believe in Jesus if we don't do something about this. So what are we going to do about it? And what is their concern? That the Roman army will come and destroy, notice they say, both our temple. Well, whose temple is it? Our temple and our nation. That power, that control is evident in their own words. Caiaphas, who was high priest at that time, said, you don't know what you're talking about. You see, the religious leaders hadn't sat idly by to this point and done nothing. They had been concerned about Jesus for a number of years. Really, all through Jesus' three years of ministry, they had combated with Jesus it's fascinating. Jesus didn't have problems with sinners. He didn't have problems with tax collectors, prostitutes. He only had problems with religious leaders of his day. And they had tried to trap him. They would ask him a question where there seemed to be no good answer. Because if Jesus would, would not answer in the right way, they thought the crowds would begin to disappear, that he would lose the crowd. And if he lost the crowd, they didn't really care what Jesus had to say. But Jesus, time and time again, made the religious leaders look foolish with all of their plots and attempts to discredit him and have him lose the crowd. And so Caiaphas basically says, you guys don't, you guys don't get it. You don't understand. You don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die. Notice the first part of that. That it's better for who? You. That it's better for you for one man to die, and then it's almost like he catches himself. Well, it's better for you that one man die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Again, they're, they're trying to, to justify, they're trying to phrase it in a way where it's not so obvious, but it's still pretty obvious. They were concerned about their control, their power, and they didn't want to lose that. But they tried to make it sound better by saying, we've got to take care of Jesus or else our whole nation's going to be destroyed. In verse 51, we find, he did not say that on his own. And keep in mind, this is John writing this. John wrote the Gospel of John years after these events took place. John was not there when the Sanhedrin met. John only can write these words because there were many individuals, many Pharisees, many religious leaders who eventually became followers of Jesus. 
And I can just imagine the conversations they had as they gave John the inside scoop, the inside story of, you'll never believe this. Do you remember when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead? Well, we met, and here was the conversation that took place. And I can almost see John laughing, or at least grinning, as he's writing these words, because Caiaphas says, you don't realize that it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. And John says, yep. (laughs) You see, Caiaphas didn't even really realize what he was saying at that moment in time. He did not say this on his own. As high priest at the time, he was led to prophesy that Jesus would die for the entire nation, and really not just the entire nation, but the entire world. It is better that one man would die so that all could be saved. And John goes on and says that not only for that nation, but to bring together and unite all the children of God scattered around the world. So from that time on, the Jewish leaders began to plot Jesus' death. They realized the only way we're going to silence him, or so they thought, was to find a way to kill him. And they basically said, how can we figure out a way to take his life? But who did they think they were? that they could take his life. Jesus himself had said during his ministry that my life will not be taken from me. I willingly lay it down. You see, they couldn't do anything apart from God's plan, apart from God's will. They thought they were going to be the ones that took Jesus' life. And yet Jesus, because it was part of God's plan, freely gave it. Even his disciples didn't understand in the garden One pulls out a sword to try to defend Jesus when the the soldiers come to take him. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't understand. (laughs) This has to happen. This is part of God's plan. He tells them, even on the cross, I could have called down 10,000 angels from heaven to prevent this. But this is part of God's plan. And Caiaphas, in resisting God, resisting God's plan, what does he do? He actually plays perfectly into God's plan. He actually does exactly what was needed so that God's plan would be lived out, that Jesus would be arrested, would be tried, kind of convicted, would be crucified. And when that happens, Caiaphas and everybody thinks, we won. We silenced Jesus. (laughs) But weren't they surprised three days later when somebody came running in and said, "Um, you know that rabbi that we crucified a few days ago? He's missing. And everybody's excited, and the crowds are bigger than ever now. (laughs) You see, when we resist God, it's kind of funny. It's almost like, have you ever, I don't know, have you had a child or a grandchild, and you've heard them talking, and they have these plans, or they say, you know what, I'm not doing something, as like a three, four, five, six-year-old, and as a parent, you're like, yes, you are. (laughs) You can try to resist. You can fight. You can throw a tantrum. You can, you know... And now we adults, we never do that with God, right? I mean, we never throw tantrums. We never throw ourselves on the floor and say, God, I'm not doing that. But if we're honest, sometimes we resist God. Sometimes we say, God, I, I can't give that up. God, that, that's too important. I can't do that. And I believe that there's a lesson that we can learn from, from Caiaphas. And if we're really honest with ourselves... I think we would say there's a little Caiaphas in all of us. How many of you just love to surrender? You just love to give up control of everything. 
you have no problem with somebody else running your life or handling whatever. You just, you freely, it's no problem to just surrender complete control to another entity. Doesn't that go against the very fabric of who we are as human beings? I want to be in control. I want to do what I want to do. We don't like to give up control. I think it's partially why we don't like to get, some of us don't like to get on roller coasters or on airplanes or things because we no longer have control. We have to trust something else. We have to trust somebody else. And let's be honest, none of us really enjoy that. None of us naturally just love to give up control and trust. But too many of us, myself included, all of us have a little Caiaphas in us. And we're like Caiaphas if we worry about losing something because of Jesus. You see, following Jesus will cost you something. Following Jesus will absolutely cost you something. Jesus, in talking with the disciples and those gathered around, he said, if any of you want to be my follower, you're going to have to die to yourself and daily take up your cross and follow after me. Following Jesus always costs something. In America, we are very blessed that following Jesus will probably not cost you your life. Following Jesus will probably not cost you being thrown into prison. But there are areas around the world in 2019 that following Jesus gives you a high probability of losing your life. That following Jesus gives you a high probability of being thrown into prison. Or at the very least, you're an outcast among your own family. Or maybe even here, maybe some of you have experienced that. You, you've come to faith in Christ and, and kind of become an outcast of your family. Following Jesus always costs something. But too often, we hesitate. Too often, we say, but I can't give that up. I can't let go of that. Maybe there's a sin in our life. And I understand that very well. Sometimes there's something that we like, I just can't let go of that. It, it's just so important to me. Maybe it's a, a certain position, or maybe it's a certain relationship that we know we shouldn't have, but it's just so important that we can't give it up. Or maybe it's a GPA or a grade, and we're, we're willing to do something to maintain that grade, because that grade is so important to us. All of us have a little Caiaphas in us. We worry about losing something because of Jesus. Caiaphas was worried about losing his position. He was worried about losing the income that was coming in and, and how, how prosperous, it, prosperous it was to be the high priest of Israel. We're all like Caiaphas. If we resist the Lord, we say we trust. And all of us who are followers of Christ, if we're honest, there are moments that we resist that. In particular, in our church, the Church of the Nazarene, we believe that when you come to faith in Christ, you get all of God. He gives all of himself to you, but the problem is there's still a battle of wills. We believe that God wants to do something in your life. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, but you find yourself constantly battling, God doesn't want you to stay there. God doesn't want you to live in that awful kind of in-between of, I want to do the right thing, but I always do the wrong thing. I, I don't want to do this, but that's what I end up doing because I know I shouldn't do that. I, I mean, I accepted Christ as my Savior, and, and we live in that turmoil too often, and God says, I don't want you to live there. I want you to live in freedom. I want you to live where you're not controlled by the power of sin. And we call it sanctification or entire sanctification, that God can do a second work in your life that will enable you to not have that constant battle. How many of you just love 
you get up in the morning, you're like, I just, today's going to be a battle, just can't wait for it, right? We don't enjoy that. Maybe for little moments. Every once in a while, I'm dumb and decide I want to, like, you know, pick a little fight or something in a relationship. But by and large, we don't enjoy that, that struggle or turmoil all the time. And the good news is that God doesn't want us to, and He wants, if we pursue Him, He can do a work in our life where we have this moment, and we call it entire sanctification, of where we surrender our will to God. We say, God, whatever it is you want. Jesus wrestled with God's will. Think about that. Jesus, the Son of God, who is also God, wrestled with His Father's will for Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's part of the Easter story. He's praying, and He knows what God wants. He knows the plan ahead of Him. And he basically, he, he prays in so intensely that he actually sweats drops of blood. That's how intense his prayer is because he knows what he's facing. He says, God, if there's any way, please let this not have to happen. And then he finally, though, in a moment of surrender says, but God, not my will, your will be done. Too often we as believers resist the Lord that we say we trust We are like Caiaphas if we fall to the temptation of preserving what we have at all costs. In college, I was a a religion major. I didn't want to be a pastor. That's the one thing I didn't want to be. Uh, But I knew it was called to ministry. And so I was a theological studies major with an intercultural studies minor. I told God, I'll be a missionary. I'll go anywhere you want, South America, Africa, whatever. Just don't make me a pastor of Americans. (laughs) So that's just a little (laughs) warning for you of when we say things and God just kind of chuckles and says, okay, (laughs) we'll see how that works out. But I'm in college, a religion major, in a religion class, Christian heritage, and I know if I don't get an A on the final, I fail the class. And if I don't pass that class, it's going to cost me at least $1,500 to take that class again. And what the professor would do is he would allow us to take all the notes we wanted, handwritten notes, and bring those to the final with us. You could bring a, page, a book of 47 pages of notes if you wanted, if you would be willing to handwrite out everything. I wasn't a fan of handwriting very much. Um, I also wasn't a big fan of studying very much either. And one of my friends in the class said, hey, somebody gave me the notes to take to the final. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they showed me. And somebody had photocopied notebook paper handwritten notes on notebook paper. And they're like, he'll never even notice. He never comes by to check to see if it, from a distance, it looks like notebook paper, it looks like handwriting, you'll be fine. And then I found out that a large percentage of kids in my class were taking these notes to the final. And so I started thinking, should I do it? Should I do it? And so I, he gave them to me. I had them. And I'm like, man, if I don't pass this class, it's going to cost me a lot. And so I took the notes with me. I made my way to class for that final And as I walked in the door, I had that internal struggle of, I know what I'm about to do is wrong, but I was so worried about not passing that class that I was willing potentially to do something that I knew to be horribly wrong. I mean, let's be honest. How bad is it for a religion major in a religion class to cheat? Does it get much worse than that? It doesn't. But too often, we fall to the temptation of preserving what we have at all costs. We're afraid of losing something. I was afraid of losing scholarships. I was afraid of losing a GPA. I was afraid of it would cost me a lot to take the class again. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me enough. I threw them in the trash as I walked in the door, 
sat down at my desk, got my test, put my name on it, walked back up, handed it to him, and walked out and failed the class. <laughs> and it feels so good today to be able to say I did that. At the time, it wasn't great that I, you know, there were consequences to failing that class. But Caiaphas wasn't willing to give up his position, his power, and he resisted what God was doing. And he was willing not only to cheat, he was willing to commit murder to make that happen. Jesus was an innocent man. Even Pilate, later on in the story, Caiaphas brings Jesus to Pilate, and he has charges brought against him that would stick. You see, Rome would not kill any individual because they violated Jewish law. They didn't really care about Jewish law. So what? doesn't matter. We don't care. But what they did care about was violation of Roman law. And what they really did care about is if somebody was an insurrectionist or somebody might try to take over or political power. And so the charge they brought against Jesus basically was he said he's a king. And so when Pilate interviews him, he basically says to, to everybody, this man's innocent. But he allows Jesus to be crucified anyway. Caiaphas, he was charged with having, or he had within his control, his grip, the most ancient scripture documents. It was his job to make sure that people understood what the Old Testament said. It was his job to make sure they understood the Ten Commandments. And what does he do? He's willing to commit murder to preserve what he had. But in the end, Caiaphas realized or found out that it's futile to resist God that God's plan happened anyway. And you know what happened to Caiaphas shortly after Jesus was resurrected? He was taken out of power. He lost what he so desperately tried to hold on to. And my guess this morning, for many of us, is that there are things in our past that we tried to so desperately hold on to. And we did things, maybe in a relationship that we knew we shouldn't do, but we were afraid of losing him. Or we did things because we're afraid of, of failing a class, or we didn't do something, or whatever it might be. And the reality is that today, that whatever it was is gone. That, that car that we thought we had to have, or that house, or, or whatever it is, it's not worth as much as it used to be. Because the little G, the little gods that we allow into our life, they always lose value and significance from the moment that we think they're so important. And usually a few years, years later, we look back and realize what I thought was so important instead of God really doesn't even matter anymore. This morning, I wonder how many of us have a little Caiaphas in us. Maybe you've resisted God's call to receive him and accept Jesus into your life. Maybe you've resisted God's call to, to repent of a sin and not just ask for forgiveness, I know what that's like. I've asked for forgiveness for sin for long, long periods of time. But to actually repent, to ask for forgiveness, and then begin to do things that will allow God to change your heart, change your life, and, and allow you to get away from that sin. All of us tend to have a little Caiaphas in each of us. And sometimes we're just afraid that saying yes to God will cost us something. And the reality is it will. Saying yes to God will cost you something but saying no will cost you more. Saying no will cost you more, including the thing that you chose over God in the first place, that relationship you thought you had to have that ended. Whatever it might be, 
This morning, I want to challenge you. Are you willing to surrender to God? It's a difficult thing to do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and they're going to play a closing song here in a few moments as we take communion together. But this idea of surrender, giving up control, I don't like to do it, and my guess is neither do you. But I have a feeling that for many of us in this room, God has spoke to us this morning, and there's something that we're trying to hold on to. Maybe it has to do with a family member, a spouse, a child. Maybe it's something that in theory is good, but, but we're trying to maintain control and power in a situation that we should really surrender to God. Or maybe He's calling you to accept Him into your life for the first time. Or maybe He's calling you to confess a sin and give it to Him and, and give up control of your life. Whatever it is this morning, do it. I was terrified of ziplining. I hate heights. I'm terrified by heights. About six, seven months ago, I kind of had to go ziplining. It's a complicated story, but I had to. It wasn't an optional thing. And so I find myself climbing up through the, this rope ladder things up in the trees, and I'm just, I'm terrified out of my mind. I get to the, the first platform, and I'm literally like holding onto the tree like this, so terrified. And they're like, you're strapped in. Like, look, you're fine. And, and they walk over the edge and like lean over the edge, and they're like, see, your, your rope holds you just fine. I'm like, no, I like it better right here where I can hold on. <laughs> and then it was my turn. And I basically couldn't make myself. I mean, it sounds crazy, but I, I'm so terrified. I couldn't make myself go up. And I literally had to start praying, God, help me to somehow move my feet. Help me to somehow move to where I can do this. Because there, there's no going back. Like I was stuck. There was no turning around. And so they said, all you have to do, they strapped me in then finally. And they said, all you have to do is just lean back and pick up your feet and let go. And you'll be zooming away through the treetops. And I'm like, no, that's what I'm afraid of. That's what I don't want to have happen. And so finally, God enabled me. I know it sounds crazy. You can laugh. I've been laughed at my whole life. It's okay. But I did just that. I, I just, I leaned back like they said, picked up my feet, and I surrendered control. At this point, I had no more control. And I went zipping through the treetops. And to be honest, I enjoyed it way more than I ever thought I would. So much so that even I had to do it five more times that day. But just last week, we were in an opportunity with my family to go zip lining. This time I didn't have to do it. But I knew what the sensation was like going down the zip line. And I knew that by going up to that tower and leaning back and picking up my feet and just letting go, I would have a great time. You see, we're oftentimes so worried about something and we say no to God, we, we hold on and maintain control in our own lives. And yet what I found is the moment that we finally surrender to him and we just pick up our feet and we let go and we say, God, I'm yours, the journey becomes incredible. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate communion as an opportunity to respond to what God is saying to us. We have some individuals that are going to come help us with communion. We invite you to come forward at this time. We practice open communion at our church. That means it doesn't matter if you're Baptist or Lutheran or, or some other Christian denomination. The only requirement in our church is that you put your faith and trust in Jesus. And this morning, if you've never done that, you can come forward as a step of faith saying, I want to put my faith and trust in Jesus. Or maybe this morning you're like me and 
You want to maintain control. You want to hold on. But God said, will you give up control of that thing? Will you give up control of that person? Will you just trust me? Will you surrender to me? This morning, as we come forward and, and receive communion, it can be your prayer. God, give me the grace to do that. God, I want to do that. I want to surrender. We believe that in taking communion, we're being obedient to what Christ called us to do. On the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Or after giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body broken for you. You see, Jesus' body being broken on the cross is what gives us spiritual life. Just like bread gives us physical life, Jesus' body gives us spiritual life. Likewise, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of sins, take and drink. In the old covenant, God's wrath was poured out on sin. In the new covenant, through Jesus' death and resurrection, his blood cleanses us from all sin. And we can stand before him blameless and faultless, not because we're so good, but because of what Christ did for us. And so Jesus said, this is the new covenant. My love poured out, my forgiveness poured out on you. Will you receive it? This morning, we all come to the table the same way as a sinner saved by grace. It unifies us. It doesn't matter how old we are, young we are, rich or poor, educated or not, makes no difference. We come as a sinner saved by grace. And in doing that, it unifies us as the body of Christ. And so this morning, after I pray, I'm going to invite you to come forward. You'll stand up these two sections. You'll exit your road to the right. You'll come up here, receive the bread, dip it in the grape juice. These two sections, you'll exit to the right, come forward, and then you'll return back to your seats. If you don't want to do intinction, that's okay. We also have a cup up here with a wafer and juice. You can just grab one of those and then take it back to your seat. That, that's perfectly fine as well. It's not about the form. It's about the obedience and responding to what Christ has called us to do. And so I'm going to pray for us. And I, as I pray, my hope is that God will speak to your heart and that you will say yes to whatever it is he's saying, that you will surrender in whatever area of your life you need to surrender. And I believe that God wants to do an incredible thing in your life we bow your heads with me. Father, thank you so much for your love. I pray that this day we would surrender control to you. Father, as, as a pastor at this church, Father, I pray that I would be surrendered. Father, I pray that our, our leadership, our board would be surrendered to what it is you want. Father, help us to not say, this is what we want. God, come, come along and, and bless it. But instead, Father, may we surrender you and say, God, what do you want? Or maybe we're an individual in this. We've never come forward in faith, Father. We've never said yes to Jesus. And, and you're, we're struggling with you right now. Father, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit that a person like that would say yes in this moment, yes to Jesus, and would give up control of their life. Or maybe somebody has been a believer for a long time, but they, they've just wrestled with sin, Father, there's, and they need to experience the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in their life. They need to have a moment when they finally just surrender their will to yours and say, not my will, but your will be done. Father, I thank you for each person here. May your Holy Spirit rest on them, speak to them, bless them. And Father, may we not resist the God that we say we trust and follow. It's in Jesus' precious name. I pray.